If you're between the ages of four and the second grade, you're excused to kids club. I commented earlier about the snow. If you are enjoying it, you have Pierce to thank. As uh, I've commented on Facebook publicly, uh, Pierce has begun to pray for snow on a regular basis. As we were talking about it, he reminded me, I was telling him the other day that we'd had four or five inches, and he said, Dad, I've been, I've been praying for feet, not inches. <laughs> so this morning at breakfast, he and I were talking for a moment, and he reminded me that feet is plural. Uh, so if we continue to get more, um, you can thank him as he is uh, praying a lot. Although several people, I think Pixie included, commented they're praying against Pierce, so it's kind of a prayer war. Uh, pick your side. I have a sneaking suspicion having moved here, Pierce will win. Well, we have walked into a series called The Table. Uh, what does it look like when Jesus invites his 12 closest friends to a meeting? They gather around a meal and have fellowship together. As Jesus has walked with these guys for three years, he pulls them together for this last meeting, this final opportunity to pour into them, to love them, to teach them, and to put truth before them. And so the meal starts last week. We walked through the, the washing of the feet. And, and just the reality that as Jesus got together with these guys, they'd already met, they were sitting at the table, and he offered to wash their feet. And for us to realize that when Jesus washed their feet, it wasn't just a ritual. It was part of the Passover meal. And in fact, contextually, we said this, that the submission to the washing of the feet was a sign of the confession of the need for cleansing and the affirmation of faith, that when the Messiah came, he would provide cleansing for all of the people. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was laying before them the reality that he would cleanse them from their sins. And then he gave us a model of servanthood. Putting before them this idea that if you understand the knowledge of your identity and that you let go of barriers, Jesus then became low and served us to the point of death. And he challenged us to do the same. So this morning as we move on in the Gospel of John, John 13, 18, we're going to pick up the story at the table where Jesus has washed these guys' feet and he's been teaching them. In fact, he had just challenged them with this reality of servanthood, saying, if you know these things, the idea that's good if you know them, but blessed are you if you do them. That it's one thing to know what you're supposed to do in the faith, quite another to actually live it out, and he puts the smack down on them early. So as we walk into John 13, 18, where we'll be this morning, he continues teaching them by saying, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And fresh off of calling them servants, calling them to serve, by blessing them to obey, he notes, quoting from Psalm 41, 9, that someone will lift their heel against him. It's a reference written about David. Uh, when David is stabbed in the back by his close friend Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 16, this idea that a close friend would turn their back on you. In fact, contextually, he who ate my bread, it's this picture of intimate fellowship. He who would come to my table, who'd be welcomed into my house, he who I'm loved would turn his back utterly on me. And you start to see this picture before us for our text of what happens, this second major incident at the table of Judas 
choosing to turn his back on Jesus. Jesus fulfilling prophecy while doing it. So let's go into the text and continue to see what it says. As Jesus is teaching, he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus tells him, I want you to know ahead of time that this is about to happen. Because I want you to know that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send me, I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Jesus is putting before his disciples this idea that he is completely and absolutely in control. He wanted his disciples to believe his claims before his crucifixion would seemingly invalidate them. And before his resurrection would confirm them, he wanted his disciples to know that he was absolutely and completely in control. Now for you to put this in context, for Jesus to put this before his disciples is a pretty bold claim. It it tells you about Jesus' sovereignty in this moment, his understanding, his control. It's a bit like if you were playing horse on a basketball court and a guy walked up and made an outlandish claim. If he walked up with a basketball and said, I'm going to put it off the backboard, off the wall, off my head, nothing but net, and he did it, you'd know he had game. That's kind of like what Jesus does here. It's like the third game of the 1932 World Series, I had to look that up by the way, when in the fifth inning, Yankee Babe Ruth points out to center field and proceeds to crush the ball into center field. It suggests control. So when you see in this moment Jesus telling them and wanting to put before his disciples this picture, I want you to know something's about to happen. I want you to know I'm about to be betrayed. And I'm telling you this now so that you'll believe me. So that you'll know that this, what's about to happen, won't challenge my authority. Now friends, where that becomes helpful and instructive to us as a church is Jesus is saying, listen, he's not going to be faithful. That doesn't challenge who I am. Where that becomes helpful for us is to realize the example that gets, before the, gets put before the church a lot is that, well, Christians aren't always faithful, therefore Christianity can't be real. No, Jesus said he'd be betrayed, and yet that doesn't challenge who he is at all. See, it's possible that some of us even here this morning could have a bad experience with somebody and not like the church. You could actually have a bad experience with the church and not like the church and miss the reality of who Jesus was. Jesus is putting before his disciples, though this thing is going to happen and it's personally going to burn you, it's going to sting you, I'm telling you ahead of time it's going to happen because I want you to trust that I'm in control. And church, that's big for us. It's big for us to recognize that. That people will still betray Jesus. And we'll walk more into that here in a moment. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testifying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. After saying these things, after revealing to his disciples that I will be betrayed, he has this imminent control, and yet he has a personal and emotional connection to it. Jesus isn't just sitting there spouting off facts and figures, detached from it. He's wanting you to know that he's troubled. 
It says, Jesus was troubled in his spirits. And the text, if you were to dig into it, suggests a very emotional response from Jesus. That he's actually pretty visibly bothered by this. And that there's a reality to this. That his friend is about to choose to deny him. And it's really painful. It was painful even to Jesus. In verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, we know that to be John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him and asked Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And you find that these 12 men leaning around a table. Now, if you give me a second to contextualize it for you, you've got to appreciate that Jesus at a triclinium table is leaning on his left elbow. John is sitting to his right. John would then be leaning into the chest of Jesus. You're actually left with a picture that John is here and Peter's probably next to John. Because Peter asked the question of John to try to get Jesus' attention. So as they sit here, they're having a little private conversation about, wait a second, who? Somebody's going to betray you? And it's instructive for us to realize that nobody knew. In fact, Matthew 26, 22 says this, And they were all sor- sorrowful and began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? And mark it. 14, it says, they all say, surely not I, Lord. That when sitting around this table, when Jesus says, one of you will betray, nobody pointed a finger at anybody. Everyone thought, whoa, is it me? Couldn't be me. Well, I wouldn't be the one that would betray you. Where that becomes so helpful for us is to realize that these guys didn't pick up on the fact that Judas was the one that would betray him. And that's easy for us as Bible readers in the 21st century to grasp. But what we miss about that reality is that Jesus, for three years, walked 365 days a year, probably 366 on leap days, years if they celebrated that, walked with these guys all the time, everywhere. They were close friends. Nothing would have moved past them. And yet Jesus loved Judas in this real way. This complete way, this way that suggested, even if you'll betray me, I'm loving you with this pure and authentic love that will show nothing to anybody. He wanted them to know how loved he was. And it wasn't a game and it wasn't a trick. And Jesus answers, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So again, let's step back into a culture. Because as we walk into Christianity, Christianity not a Western religion, very much an Eastern religion, with very much a cultural context of Judaism, we probably should understand what's going on with this meal. So let me explain it to you. During this time of a Passover meal, the dipping of a piece of bread was a significant part of the ritual. During the meal, the master of the ceremony would pick up a piece of unleavened bread, 
which was flat cake. And he'd put pizza of lamb on the bread and he'd sprinkle it with bitter herbs. And then he would roll it. It's not a quick process. It takes time. He would then take the bread containing the meat and the herbs and he would dip it into bitter sauce. And then he'd hand one to each guest. And here's the fascinating thing. He would start with the guest of honor who was always seated on his left. In in preparing the bread with the meat and herbs dipped in the sauce, the master of the feast was reminding all the the participants of God's promise to provide salvation. That's what he's talking about while he's going through this process. In receiving the piece of bread, each participant then would acknowledge their sin. And each would also reaffirm their faith in God's promise that he would someday send a Messiah to take away the sins by sacrificing himself. So Jesus, who takes this bread and this lamb and this bitter herbs, dips it in sauce and hands it to the person on his left. Now that's further instructive to us Because if Peter is leaning on John, and John is leaning on Jesus, who's Jesus leaning on? Judas. In fact, he would have spent most of the meal leaning into Judas' chest. That seems to suggest some intimacy in the relationship. And further, while he hands him this bread, while nobody continues to understand what's going on. That's why the disciples still miss this fact when Jesus says, it's who I hand this bread to, and the disciples are still going, I don't get it. (laughs) Because Jesus, after handing it to Judas, would have proceeded to dip it in sauce and hand it to each and every person at the table. Where this becomes helpful for us to realize because having read Bibles for a lot of our lives, we can take, make the misperception that Judas was the only sinner at the table. And we miss the fact that every single man at that table was a sinner. Every last one of them to the core. So the difference between Judas and the other disciples wasn't that one was a sinner and one wasn't. The difference is that when Judas was handed a piece of bread, acknowledging that he was a sinner and being offered forgiveness, we have no record at all that he consumed it. And whether or not he consumed it or not, we know that the offer for forgiveness that was given to him was never accepted. Which suggests to us the reality, which is so helpful and instructive about Jesus' love for us is that the reality that Judas would be in hell now is not based on his sin. And it's not even based on his rejection of Jesus. It's based on his unwillingness to accept forgiveness. See, where that becomes big for us is because some people who walk the halls of churches somewhere deep down inside themselves have become convinced that they have sinned that God himself cannot tolerate. And so they might walk the halls of a church but never actually give themselves to Jesus. Never actually receive the forgiveness that's offered to them. 
in a real, in a deep, and a meaningful way, and thus miss salvation. Friends, have you accepted Christ in that meaningful way where you let go of your sins and you're not defined by them and you're not owned by them and they don't define every aspect of you because you've given yourselves over to the forgiveness of Jesus? Because that's what gets played out here. Judas refuses to accept forgiveness. And at the same moment, even in the act, even in the act of denying him, even in the premeditated reality that Judas has already received money to hand over Jesus, Jesus is still offering him forgiveness. You can't be too far gone for Jesus Christ. There is no sin, even in the utter, full, personal, intimate rejection of him that he cannot take. And in verse 27, after he'd taken the morsel, he received it. It says, Satan entered into him. There was a change to his person. So much so that John, looking back on it, says, clearly Satan was involved Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. What you've given over your heart to do, do it quickly. It's that reality that we find in the book of Romans in the first chapter, that if you choose sin in your own heart, God will give you over to it. What you've decided to do, do quickly. These disciples... These brilliant scholars, verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. And they thought to themselves, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling them to go buy what we need for the feast or that they should give something to the poor, both of which were common on Passover nights. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And these disciples still don't understand what happened. They still don't understand exactly what Judas has given himself over. We just know that Judas walks away and he betrays Jesus. We'll see that in the rest of the text. And as we look at this text, it's clear that this text is about Judas. It's clear that it's about Judas's betrayal. And let's be really real about this. This had to hurt. You can't walk with a guy in this kind of intimate fellowship without it clearly, deeply, physically wounding you. Jesus was visibly upset. But the side of it we miss is that the disciples clearly would have taken this personally as well. I don't know if you've ever walked into this kind of betrayal before. It's actually nearly impossible not to make a personal example or an illustration from something like this. But these disciples were wounded. In fact, when Luke comes around to write the gospel or the book of Acts in Acts one seventeen, talking about Judas, he says, For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. That they saw him as invested, they saw him as a part of it, in fact, they were betrayed as well. You further see that in the fact that there are 30 references to Judas in the gospel, and every single one of them 
includes a reference to his betrayal. It's clear that it wounded these guys. It hurt them deeply. So as a teaching aspect, we come to this, and we have to say that we'll all be betrayed. Why? Because people are sinners. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. The fact that Jesus walked through this betrayal means that when we walk through a similar kind of deal, and we will, the only person who will really truly understand you on a hardcore value is Jesus. Because he sympathizes with us. So whether it's a business partner, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a friend, someone you've loved, the reality of betrayal is huge. I have a really close friend who uh, has two girls. And he's taught both of his daughters this truth that's really begun to strike me a lot. He teaches his girls that I'm your daddy, but he's your father. He's drawn a really important distinction to say that I'm your daddy, and I'm going to make mistakes, and I will fail you. No, make no mistake about it. But he is your father, And he never will. He'll always, always be faithful. And what an instructive thing for a dad to put before his kids. First, knowing that everyone will project images of God, will be determined by who their dad was. To just own the reality that I'm not perfect. And that the man you look up to in your house makes mistakes. And he's flawed. Because dads betray their families because we're sinners. We don't try, but it's a reality of it. The only one who is faithful is our Father. We're all betrayed, and we'll all be betrayers. We see that lived out in Peter, not more than a a couple of weeks later, when Jesus reinstates him for betraying him as well. But as we look at this text, it's about Judas. But if we make it exclusively about Judas, we'll miss the main character. Because this is a gospel, and it's about the gospel. And it's about the reality that Judas was at the table, and he was a sinner at the table, but he wasn't the only sinner at the table. All of them were sinners. Judas was unwilling to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Judas' problem in this moment is that he allowed himself to be isolated in sin. Because sin always isolates us. It always makes us feel like we're on our own. It always costs more than we think. It takes more than we thought. We have to be careful with how sin isolates us. We have no idea what got Judas to this place. The scripture isn't clear about that. But having walked with Jesus for three years, you just get the idea that Jesus wasn't meeting his expectations anymore. That he had this idea of who he wanted Jesus to be. What he wanted from Jesus. What Jesus would do with his life. And when he wasn't getting what he wanted out of Jesus, he was done. 
when Jesus was no longer pushing him and getting what he thought he deserved, he was over with it. And the heart of this story is that even Judas, who was fed up with Jesus, the gospel would tell us that Judas, even though he was a sinner, was open to the grace of Christ. Because the heart of the gospel and the heart of every story is Jesus. The heart of every story is Jesus, who would pick a man knowing that he would stab him in the back, who would pick a man to follow him knowing that he would sin against him, who would pick a man and allow him to walk in intimate fellowship the way he's done with each and every one of us. That Jesus would pick a man and allow him into leadership, letting G Judas serve as a treasurer in their organization, that he would take this guy who would fall short, just like he's done with every single one of us. And he'd prop him up, and he'd make him into something, even though he deserved something far different. And he'd offer him his grace, because the heart of the gospel is Jesus. And when we accept the forgiveness of Christ, the propping up that he's offered to us, we receive. But when we reject it, we isolate ourselves like Judas. He loved Judas so well that nobody knew any different. He loved Judas so well that he cleansed his feet in an intimate way, removing the dirt and the grime and the scum from his life. And even in this moment, he offers him forgiveness because he loves him to the end, to the fullest, the same way he's loved each and every one of us. See, if we'll take this text to the end of it, it's the reality that all of us are like Judas. All of us betray Jesus on a regular basis when we choose sin rather than grace. When we choose what, what we would want for ourselves rather than what a loving Father would put before us. But where we're not like Judas is when Jesus offers us the forgiveness of our sins, we have the opportunity to receive it, to take it, and to be defined by it. And you see that in the lives of the other disciples. It's why these 11 men walked away, all willing to die for this relationship with Christ. All willing to die for all these truths that Christ had poured into them. 10 of those guys being crucified John, they boiled in oil, and when he got out of the pot and walked away, they decided he'd been crucified. So all of these guys were tortured and held on to what they believed. Why? Because that piece of bread with a piece of lamb in it with sprinkled herbs that had been dipped in sauce and handed to them meant something. It meant that they understood at their core that they were a sinner, that they sinned, 
And in receiving it, they understood that because of their sin, they fell short. And that what Jesus had to offer them was so significant and so complete that it defined them when they took it. If you want a fascinating gospel study, read and study the life of Peter prior to the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit. Something radical happens to Peter who says outlandishly foolish things before and yet stands in front of crowds testifying after. This moment defined everyone in the story. It defines Judas who goes off and has his gut split in a field according to the book of Acts. It defines these disciples who go to the uttermost parts of the world to be murdered for their faith. And it defines Jesus as he puts the gospel before them, loving them to the full, even in their betrayal. Jesus, this man who washes our feet, who makes us clean, who serves us through his death, and removes the grime of our lives, offers us forgiveness. Regardless of our past, regardless of what we've walked through, regardless of where we're at, or what our current plots, plans, and schemes are, he offers us forgiveness and redemption, and even made Judas the guest of honor at his table so that he could be served first. That's how Jesus loved him to the full. And that's how he loves you to the full. That you are the guest of honor at his table when he desires you to dine with him as he does every day. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text this morning, Father, walking through this upper room meal considering these different aspects of a Passover. Father, in both of these incidents, you're clearly declaring yourself as the Messiah, the answer to the problem of sin, that as men came into this dirty, you offered them cleansing. As men came into this with sin in their hearts, you offered them forgiveness. There is no one here, God, who is too far gone for your grace. There's no one here whose grime and grit of life you cannot absolutely and totally redeem. That as I stand on a platform here and I think of the darkest nights of my life and the dirtiest things I've ever done, God, you've offered me forgiveness and a cleansing that supersedes and is greater than any hope I could have ever had. And it's so true for all of us. God, you redeem us. And it defined these men's lives to the full. May it be true of us as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.